this evening I would like to talk about the four stages of awakening because Stephen keeps talking about the first stages but it seems to me in order to really understand the whole schema it might be better to kind of hear about the rest because <laughs> you, uh, you keep hearing about the stream entry and uh, possibly it might be good to know the rest of the story uh, and first I'd like to point out that in a way when we look at awakening I think it's very important to see it in the, in the context of a possibly wider environment than just meditation there is what I would call formal meditation but also uh, my teacher uh, when I was in Korea was very emphatic that in a way the awakening came out of the three training training of ethics, <coughs> training of meditation, training of wisdom and that in a way in order to develop very much the, in the Dharma on the Buddhist path you had to cultivate the three but of course so meditation is one of the three but not the only one just that minor point then in a way the way I want to look at these four stages of awakening is in a way because often when we hear about awakening we have this idea that it's really far away because often in a way it is connected to monks and to nuns and they live far away and also there is you all these words stream entry, six returner, one returner, haram you know you all see kind of words and you kind of but to me what is interesting when I read about these uh, four stages which is in a way the original kind of uh, analysis of the Buddha, presentation of the Buddha which then over time was very much kind of uh, evolved and changed you have the ten stages, the forty-two stages I mean you have kind of stages I go go uh, all over the Buddhist path so, but I think four is kind of you know enough to look at uh, tonight it, to me what is interesting is in a way what does it mean for us because if we practice meditation and if we practice meditation within the three training within this idea of this awakening uh, within these four stages what does it mean for us? is it kind of like a fairy tale story that you kind of you know we tell ourselves to go to sleep at night and say yes you know because I remember when I was in Korea I mean in Korea they really gun ho awakening you know you must awaken you know like before tonight you know this is very you know, my, my teacher used to say, you know, you must vow to be awakened by tonight. And then if tonight you've not got it, you must vow to awaken by the next morning. So it was very kind of strong message. And I used to be, in a way, perplexed a little by this idea of awakening. I used to think, well, well I don't mind if it happens to me, you know, why not? I have nothing against it. But, you know, what has it got to do with wisdom and compassion? What has it got to do with the way I relate to myself and to others? To me, to me in a way, awakening is only meaningful if it really, in a way, makes, as Stephen was mentioning this morning, a real difference in our lives. And that's why I think, in a way, the four stages actually can have great meaning. And also, they can, it can show us already 
that actually there is a certain progression on the path. I think it is not that attainable, unattainable. I think there is some stage of the path which is attainable for us and we might have already experienced. And of course there are others which are more kind of like really to get there would require really great courage and great practice. So, and the first things to really know about the four stages of awakening is that it is not about gaining. It is really about what we're going to lose. This, I think, is a very important point. Because often we feel with this awakening, especially with enlightenment, that we're going to get something. Often I have a feeling we feel that at some day we're going to start to float and then live like a Christmas tree. But this is not really what this is about, especially not in these four stages. It's very much about what is it we're going to lose. And in a way, too, sometimes I wonder, sometimes I think, you know, do, do everybody want to lose it? And then you can know, you know, if this is really for you or not. Are you ready to lose this or not? This is very much about that. So, Stephen already mentioned the first one, which is you lose belief in self, belief in right and rituals, and doubt. Second one, there it's more a weakening. Second stage, you weaken greed and hatred. Third stage, greed and hatred are totally dissolved. And fourth stage, Restlessness, conceit, ignorance are totally gone. So this is the framework. This is what it is about. But let's look at them in terms of our experience, because that's what I think is interesting. And personally I would say that the first two, ta- uh, the first two stages, I think, are relatively easy to experience in some way. And to me, I would say the reason we continue to meditate is because of that. It's because we can experience this loss. And in a way, we can benefit from this loss of this, all these things, of these two stages. But of course, I would say the last two stages, the third and the fourth, that I think require great intention, great courage, great dedication. And in a way, that's why we continue, because it is kind of, you know, it is interesting to kind of consider those last two stages. So the first one, so it's about, first, belief, belief in self goes. This, I think, is important to see how it's phrased. It's not that self goes. It's belief in a certain type of self which goes. Because when we talk about no-self, often I have a feeling people are afraid that they're going to disappear, that you're actually trying to obliterate yourself. And that's not what you do when you sit on the cushion. The idea is not that there is this nasty self and we must get rid of it. Because I think this is kind of like, it cannot work that way. What actually we're trying to dissolve is actually more the which actually create this impression of this very fixed, separate, isolated self. That actually what we, the dissolving is actually the glue 
which is kind of like a de-sticky. The self, you don't disappear. You are, you, I mean, this is what is interesting. You can meditate for 10, 20, 30 years and you don't really become a different person. You know, my mother doesn't think I am very different. <laughs> but I would say the de-sticky happens. There is a de-sticky. There is a, a kind of a, a softening, I would say, of the functioning self. We know so much this rigid, thick self. We don't reduce ourselves as much to a certain feeling, certain thought, certain condition. There is more space around the self. There is, so there is still this functioning self. But we realize, we know, we experience that this functioning self is not a fixed entity. That actually it is this conglomerate of conditions, of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. So actually I would say the belief in self going is what enables us to become more who we are. It's the opportunity to really, in a way, open fully to who we can be in this moment. Because the belief in self, in this rigid fix, it's interesting, how does it feel when you say, I am an angry person? You know, sometimes you hear people say, I am an angry person, you know? And it's like, you know, I am like this, I will always be like this, that's the way I am. And I think, wait a minute, when you can't keep on, you can't keep on that, however much you want to be. You, you are angry because of certain conditions, inner and outer. And I think that's what this thing, this belief in self-going, is realizing we are this flow of conditions. And what I think the meditation helps us to do is to realize how more and more all the conditions that forms us. That actually this self is relatively stable, but at the same time it is relatively fluctuating. And we can feel this ourselves. We have a certain kind of, you know, relative stability, of course, but within that there is movement. And recently I was reading about, I think it's Robert Lowell, uh, a poet. I was reading an article about him and I never heard of him before, or maybe just faintly. And the article was about himself and his work and what was amazing for me to read is that throughout his life he had about, he has had about more than you know 20 breakdowns before he died of a heart attack or something like this. And so regularly, nearly every year, he had this manic episode and then he would have to go to a psychiatric hospital and for a few weeks and then it would go down and then he would be back to being, you know, Robert Lowell, the great poet, you know, who was a little kind of excited, but he was kind of sane. And then when you have somebody like this, who regularly, in a way, sane, insane, sane, insane, then what, what is his true self? What is his true self? And I think to me this is again an example of, in a way, ourselves is very contingent. And so in a way, what goes is a, is a belief in a very fixed self. 
and that by letting go of that belief, we actually, in a way, start to experience ourselves in a much lighter, much space, more spacious way, and also more creative way. So to see that when we lose something, it's not just to kind of cut something off, but even more by that losing, there is opportunity for something to be more there, in a way. Then there is rites and rituals, and I think this is more about, in a way, losing that idea of magic, magic and mystery. I mean, of course, it's enjoyable, magic and mystery. You know, personally, I use, you know, I I, I can see how it's so kind of uh, charming, in a way to believe in magic and mystery. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a certain charm. But once I had this, uh, this person come to me and saying to me, I was told that uh, if I had difficulty, then I needed to do a lot of bowing. If I did bowing for three months, it would purify myself and then my difficulty dis- would disappear. And then he came to me and he said, well, I did the bowing non-stop for three months and the difficulty did not disappear. And, I mean, I don't think bowing is a bad idea. I mean, I think it can be very good exercise. It can also be a very good kind of development of devotion. It also can be a great cultivation of patience, of endurance. There can be many different qualities in that. But, as a means to resolve what I would call practical, pragmatic difficulty, I am not so sure. You know, I mean, at least that time it did not work synchronistically, if one might say. And to me, it would make more sense if one has difficulty to kind of look within the conditions. What happens for this difficulty to manifest in that way? inside myself, outside myself, and how can I engage with this? So I think that's why the Buddha, I mean, the Buddha is very pragmatic. And so he's saying, you know, rites and rituals in general don't have that magical power to deal with the root of suffering. And that's why he's saying, that's why he's saying, in a way, you can still use rites and rituals. And I know for myself, I go back to Korea, I mean, I'm very happy to bow and to chant and, you know, I'm kind of, you know, it's kind of like back to my kind of uh, culture. I am happy to do this, you know, that bow to anybody who comes within sight. You know, this is a little bit strange when I came back from Korea, in England, in Totnes, I would bow to everybody. <laughs> and then kind of, kind of uh, managed to get a little out of the habit. But it's kind of, you know, it's fine as part of a certain culture, a certain environment. But it's just kind of to be careful, in a way, to see it as this magical thing that then could resolve our problem. And then there is a doubt. Doubt goes. And I think, again, I think the belief in the belief in self going, I think we all can experience it. We can experience it when we meditate when we kind of feel a little this dissolution, we can experience it in daily life, when we don't feel so fixed and so solid. The rites and ritual also, I think we can know that for ourselves. 
And then the job too. I think we can experience this. And I think in a way it's a moment where in a way there is this, this firm ground that we really know for ourselves about the practice, about the Dharma, that yes, this works. And I would totally agree that if it does not work, then we can do something else. We can take a golf, we can take a, I don't know, Tai Chi, whatever. But in a way, whatever works for you. Because that, to me, this is a thing that I love in the, that word in Korean, is when they say you cannot retrograde. They come a point where this is it. In a way, you are stuck with meditation. You're stuck with the Dharma. This is it. <laughs> because in a way, you have no doubt about yourself, about the Dharma, about the practice, but not because somebody told you so, but because you know for yourself that this works. And so it's kind of when you move from this sitting here thinking, should I really do this or should I do something else? You know, when you sit like this, of course, this is not very comfortable. But I think at one point, we reach a point where inside us we really know. So that then when you sit, when you, whatever you do, in a way the Dharma, the, the value of the Dharma, which I would say wisdom and compassion, are at the ground of your life. And then no matter what else you do, whatever shape your life takes, it does not matter. And to me, I was a nun for 10 years, then I was living in a Buddhist community for uh, six years. No, 15 years actually, no, 15 years. I was living in a kind of a very Buddhist environment. And now I am living in France, in this tiny village, Stephen and myself, and no Buddhist in sight. <laughs> and we are quite fine. And so in a way it's kind of like our life is in reverse. You know, we can go from very high spiritual to very kind of low spiritual, you could say. But in a way, to me, this is just the external and whatever condition happens. But throughout those changes, there is this ground, I would say, of no doubt, of the, 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 the strong thing about the wisdom and compassion about the Dharma, about something I can do, something through which I can evolve, I can develop, and which really is very meaningful in my life. And so to me, this no doubt stage, I think, yes, we, could, we can all, we know a need, I think, to experience, to experience it <coughs> at some point on the path, to continue on it. Otherwise, I think then we'll just give up, because something else will be more interesting, or more meaningful, or more valuable, which I think is fair enough. And so, this first stage, I think, is very important to see that it's not kind of, of course, we can have a glimpse, as in a meditative experience, but I think it's also something which we develop in our lives. This kind of, you know, losing at different levels the belief in self, losing at different levels the belief in rites and rituals, losing at different levels the doubt. So it's not just one thing happening, but it's kind of, in a way, a development. I think it's very important to see that. 
And then there is a second stage, which I also believe we can all experience and might have experienced at some point, which is the one where it's said that greed and hatred are weakened. And that's what awakening is about. Not <laughs> lights and floating, but it's very much about the weakening of greed and hatred. And it seems to me that if we practice meditation, if we practice the Dharma, cultivate ethics and wisdom, this dissolves. I mean, if it did not, does not dissolve, then I think there is a problem. Something is definitely not working. I mean, this, to me, is a natural thing that happens. And we can see, I think, within ourselves, if we look at greed, if we look to me, what is interesting to look at greed is what is behind greed. There is very much this wanting. There is very much this, you know, it's there is something you want, something you kind of are thirsty for. And actually it sets a whole kind of I want. And this I can very much see with children. It's very interesting. In my family now there are a lot of children, kind of younger. Uh, at the moment, a lot of young girls, three, four, five, seven. And it's interesting when they get into this kind of mode of I want. <coughs> and there is this kind of, oh, this kind of, you know, they want it now and not a minute later. Otherwise, they, I mean, it's kind of very noisy. <laughs> and, but I feel that sometimes as adults, we, we have that childish, I want. And that's actually the, 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 the training, the three training of ethic, meditation, and wisdom actually work on that, work on that. This feeling of, I cannot stand not to have that. That actually is that diminished. And that you come in contact with things that before you used to desire so much. And now you think, well, in a way, I can have it or not. I can take it or I can leave it. So in a way, I think that stage gives us freedom in our contact. We start to be more freedom. And we start to have a little, in a way, start to see the difference between what is it I need and what is it I want. Because often there is this idea that if there is no greed, then we're going to become like a vegetable, you know, kind of sit there. But I don't think that's what the Buddha is about. I think what he's looking at is that kind of, that kind of thirst, that kind of, kind of wanting, that kind of, that in a way we want, our wanting is our existing. And the Buddha is saying, no, you don't need to thirst in order to exist. But because we need to exist, then of course, we need fish, we need food, we need clothes, we need houses, we need to live. We need to have a job, training, etc., etc. So in a way to see that I think here is when we start actually to, to I, I would say, to have a more healthy relationship to ourselves and to the material world and to people. And in a way the difference when you know, for example, in relationships, when sometimes you, you kind of have a relationship when you want the person, but actually you want the person 
all your fate. And actually you really are not thinking about the person. You want the child for yourself. I had a friend like this. It was so fascinating. He really wanted a child. He really wanted a child. And his wife did not want one, but finally he convinced her. And it was interesting because he saw the child. I don't know what would give him something so that he would, I don't know, more value to his existence, possibly. And so finally he got the child. And the first thing he said, it's so different from what I imagined. <laughs> and that's what is so interesting for the first actually give a certain glow to the object, the person, the relationship that then you discover is not there. So in a way I think this greed disappearing doesn't mean that we cannot appreciate the other, cannot share life, grow together with other, but not from this point of view that this is for me, but more kind of what I would call a more equal relationship. And in the same way with object, to look in a way how is our relationship to object and how maybe through the meditation, through the training that might have changed to instead of I want this to I could consider this you know I could think about it I remember when I when I came back uh, from uh, being a nun living in Tottenham and I would kind of look in the shops and you know I won this it was very interesting and I would plot for four months to buy one thing it was kind of a weird thing you know know, pair of shoes or dress or whatever it was I was plotting and then you know I would finally get it and then as soon as I would get it then I would plot for the next object until I kind of saw the plotting you know that kind of thirst for something and the plotting that was involved and I kind of thought I mean I don't need to do this I don't need to spend you know months plotting and so now you know if I need something I say okay do I really need it can I really get it okay let's go for it and this is it (laughs) and in a way not having that constant thirst so that you can constantly in a way need another object instead of kind of you know what is it that is needed or not and then would be more space within it then there is a hatred and it's very interesting again that hatred, aversion, rejection and and already we can see how maybe the training and the meditation has made it easier for us to be with difficult people people we kind of, you know, you know, you know there is some people we really, I mean, we don't even want to be in the same room with we don't you know, for whatever reason and maybe already the meditation has made it that we look past the aversion to the human being who is here and who is also suffering and has many different reasons and conditions for being the way they are and in a way finding the time, the space and way to be with the difficult people but I mean you might, you don't have to spend the rest of their life with them or all week but to spend, you know, just half an hour with them and, and that it is totally possible because the problem often when we have hatred, aversion 
not so much with the person themselves or the situation, but is in a way our exaggeration of it. And to me, I think at that stage, when greed and hatred are weakened, is when the exaggeration is diminished, that we stop exaggerating. And we can really encounter what is difficult as difficult, but without kind of, in a way, making it into this huge thing. And I think in a way to, to explore this, to see how already we might have, in a way, left of that, that in a way we can be more easily with what is difficult and also we can be more easily when people are difficult to order. To me this is because often we're very frightened. We're very frightened of angry people or we're very frightened of very different things. But in my experience if we develop this stability and this openness, we can be, even with difficulty, in a way which can be creative. I remember some years back when I was working, and I was talking to a co-worker, and I said the wrong thing. I mean, obviously, sometimes one does. And so we were having a kind of a normal kind of organizational conversation, and I said something, and the next minute I had like that fire. A guy, that totally fire, you know, you're always doing this, you're always doing that. And really, and he was like, you know, kind of, really kind of puffing up, you know, how you puff when you're And I was there, and my thing was, how, how can I be with this? How can I creatively encounter that? How can I. And of course it took time. It took me a good 30 minutes to kind of, you know, open to the person to see what was going on, what were the conditions, how could I be. But after 30 minutes, I managed to kind of, you know, in a way, create space around the difficulty. And so that we, can, we could encounter each other again. But if I had said, that's not true, I have a I mean, we wouldn't have got anywhere. It would just have kind of, you know, kind of really uh, gone on even worse. So I, I do think that in a way we can experience this greed, this hatred, weakening. And to me this is a sign that in a way this is the right thing for us to do, that actually this is working. <coughs> then, there is a third stage, and that is when greed and hatred are totally gone. That, I think, requires a lot of practice. That, I think, that is a little like way over there. <laughs> because in a way, what is there, what is asked of us, is that actually there is no movement anymore for that actually we can encounter whatever in this equanimous, spacious, creative way. And that, I think, would be difficult to sustain. Because I think, as a human being, we are very naturally, I mean, it's automatic, we fall or we're against. 
I could notice this with Wimbledon. You know, you watch two players and then, yeah, 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 you go around that one. Yeah, 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 go, 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 you know. And I mean, it's so automatic. We're so automatic for this against that. I mean, this is so automatic within us that, in a way, I think to, to, to really, really, really totally dissolve it, that, I think, really requires great practice. And that I would say, yes, not everybody can do it. And possibly not everybody would want to do it. I think this is another question about these four stages. You know, what is it we aspire to? Then the fourth one is interesting, in a way, because it's saying that there are still things left after all this, and it's conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. And this is interesting conceit because belief in self has gone. Belief in a sixth isolated self has gone. But this does not stop conceit. And this is true. You can know that the self is made up of the conditions, inner and outer and everything, and still there is this conceit. And this I can see in myself. You know, kind of when I travel with Stephen, Especially in America, I become the wife, you know, he's a great teacher, he's a great guru, writer, whatever. Mm-hmm. Not that he does anything to do this, but that's the way he's perceived over there. And I'm kind of, you know, like kind of the, the wife carrying the bag. <laughs> and generally I am okay with it. It's kind of, you know, it's quite restful. <laughs> and, but time to time I can see, oh, but you know, in England, we did together. <laughs> Or if uh, I look at books, it's very interesting, you know, when you're an author, a Buddhist author. So, of course, you're supposed to be equanimous, but when you hear about this book with a bestseller for millions, you think, oh, what about that book? Is it a Please have the copy. You know, and you can see, you know, oh, it's very interesting, this kind of, and I think this is conceit. This is, you know, oh, kind of this kind of I. So there is still that kind of, you know, I there. And you know, with that going, I think again, will take a long time. Also the restlessness, you know, to be totally at rest in every single moment. Kind of totally no restlessness. Because I think this is again something that we can feel. That, you know, a lot of the time, meditation really helps us to be more at peace, more at rest within ourselves. But when, when some condition comes, you can suddenly, you can, it's very interesting. How, you know, if suddenly you are very busy or suddenly something happens and, you can feel, you can feel the whole, everything is shaken. And so in a way, at that stage is when, there is not even a trace of that. It's kind of, you know, there is this calmness. And I know for myself, when I was in Korea with my teacher, and when I traveled with him, I could see that there was this calmness to him. There was this spaciousness. That no matter where he was, no matter what happened, there was this kind of, kind of like a smooth lake which could kind of encounter everything but in a way was not disturbed by anything. And that again, I think that requires a lot of practice. And then the last one is ignorance. 
ignorance to see God in connection to impermanence, to unsatisfactoriness, and to conditionality. So again, this, I think, it's kind of, you know, a lifelong journey to work on this last stage. So to me, when I read this about the last two stages, I think, no, I am not thinking this is impossible. I just think this will take time. But I think it's interesting to explore this area of ourselves, to notice them, and to see, you know, how can I dissolve some of the power of these things, which are kind of a little, kind of tightness, <coughs> fixer. So in a way, to see the four stages not as some kind of impossible goal, but more, what does it mean for me in my life? How have I already kind of, you know, a change in some ways? And how, in a way, to see, oh yes, to be humble, to be inspired, in a way, to move, to go forward, but also to be humble in the face of, still, there is things to work. And this was very much expressed, in a way, in the example of my teacher, Master Cousin, who was reputed to have had three awakenings. I mean, you would say one should be enough, but he had three. And what does that tell us? That he had three awakenings. And although he had three awakenings to the last minute of his life, he still sat in meditation. Because he told me, six months before he died, we were walking together, he said to me, you never know how you're going to be when you die. You must be ready. I must be ready. I don't know how I'm going to be. So I want to be ready. For him, the readiness was through the meditation. So the last minute of his life, he was still meditating. And to me, the fact that he had three awakening shows us that awakening is not just this flash, one bang, boom, this is it, I have sorted out, now I can, you know, do something else, now that I'm awakened. But it is kind of this seeing and then this gradual cultivation. Then again, this seeing and then this gradual cultivation. To me, this is the only way that it makes sense that it is this process, this process that, that in a way this walking on the Dharma path is about, this process of awakening, and not in a way this sudden happening for all time. And at that level, what I also wanted to mention was to look also at the evolution of the idea of Buddhahood. Because I think this is important to reflect on. That at the beginning, Buddhahood was seen as happening over many eons. That, you know, in order to become the Buddha, you had to, through many, 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 millions, millions, lifetime, and then, finally, after all this work, this was it. But, last life, you had to be reborn as a man. And then, you would be fully enlightened. Personally, I have a little trouble with kind of, you know, uh, a male awakening, but culture. <laughs> so, so, but this was, in a way, the original idea. There would be one Buddha, although, of course, you had all the Arahats, who, were, who also could get the four stages, and that the lady could get, at least. They could get 
still the same, the four stages that happened at the time of the Buddha. And then they started to develop this idea that actually Buddhahood was possible within one lifetime. So actually that we can become a Buddha within one lifetime. And so that the Buddhahood was like a seed. Awakening was like a seed that we had to water and work hard at it and then toward, if we really make much effort, then it could blossom into awakening. And then there was a third evolution, which was an evolution that actually we already Buddha, that we already awakened, but our problem is that we don't see it. So in a way, personally, I don't think that one is right or the other not, but I think it's interesting for us to see the different aspects of the path in that way. That at one level, there is a lot of work to do. At one level, it just requires our own efforts. And then in all other levels, we are already awakened. All of us in this room, each of us, is awakened. But actually, we don't see it. So in a way, sometimes we see it, and sometimes it goes. And that's why I was so struck when I met this nun in Korea. Her practice was to be a Buddha. That was her practice. So, her practice in daily life was to display the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha in her daily life. And to me, I think this is wonderful. If every day we have breakfast and then off we go, but with this intention, today I am going to be as much a Buddha as I can be. I mean, lots of scope there. <laughs> Every day you can be a different Buddha. <laughs> and at the same time, because she, she did this from this kind of um, seeing that in a, in a sutra, a Mayana sutra, where he said, all sentient beings are Buddha. All Buddhas are sentient beings. So at the end of the day, she would review how Buddha-like she'd been and how sentient being-like she'd been so that next day she could kind of try a different method. But to me this, I think, is interesting. Can, can we try to do this in our lives? Can we try, in a way, to be Buddha? And I think it would, in a way, inspire us. Not that, you know, constantly, I, 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 I'm not Buddha, but kind of, you know, just to have that idea, just to have that inspiration, just to have that energy. How Buddha-like can I be today? And try to kind of open, I think, in a way to our Buddha nature, to our Buddha potential in this moment. <laughs>